Chapters 50 and 51 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in March 2020. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 50 Italian Philosophy of Nature. This school is characterized by naturalism and a tendency towards pantheism. Cardano, 1501-1576, a Milanese physician, was the first to formulate the principles of modern naturalism. These principles were reduced to a system of speculative thought by the Calabrian Bernardino Telesio, 1508-1588, who is therefore regarded as the founder of the school. In his work, Dererum natura juxta propria principia, he advocates the use of the empirical method of investigating nature and formulates a system according to which the universe results from the combination of three principles, matter, heat, and cold. Patrizzi, 1529-1597, in his Nova de Universis Philosophia, combined the doctrines of Neoplatonism with the naturalism of Telesio and thus imparted to the school its pantheistic tendency. These pantheistic principles reached their logical development in the full-blown systems of pantheism of Bruno and Campanella. Giordano Bruno Life Giordano Bruno was born at Nola in Campania in the year 1548. At an early age he entered the order of St. Dominic, but his distaste for scholasticism and his enthusiasm for the writings of Telesio developed before long a spirit of dissatisfaction with his order and with the teachings of the Church. Discarding the garb of religion, he wandered through Italy, France, England and Germany, and is said finally to have joined the Reformed Church. Apparently, however, he found Protestantism as distasteful as the religion he had abandoned. Returning to Italy, 1592, he was arrested by the Inquisition at Venice and was burned at the stake in Rome in the year 1600. His principal works are Della Causa, Principio et Uno, and Del Infinito Universo e dei Mondi, Doctrines. Bruno's philosophy is a system of naturalistic pantheism. Its pivotal thoughts are the doctrine of the identity of God with the world and the Copernican idea of the physical universe. God, he teaches, is identical with the universe, for the universe is infinite and there cannot be two infinities. God is, therefore, the sum of all being, and the phenomena, or accidental forms of being which exist, are merely the unfolding, explicato, of the immensity of God. He is the original matter of the universe, and on this point Bruno cites the authority of David of Dinant, as well as the primitive form, the world soul, which vivifies the original matter. Indeed, these two, matter and form, not only interpenetrate each other, but are absolutely identical. God is also the final cause of all things, for to him, the God-universe, all things are constantly returning. 
The universe is, therefore, essentially one. The Aristotelian distinction between celestial and terrestrial matter can no longer be maintained. The stars are part of our solar system, or are themselves suns surrounded by planets and forming part of the one great system, which is the universe. It is in this portion of his philosophy that Bruno makes use of the discoveries of Copernicus. The universe is ruled by law. There is no place for human freedom in this system of determinism. The soul is an emanation from the divine universe, and all organisms are composed of living monads, each of which reflects all reality. Tommaso Campanella Life Tommaso Campanella was born in Calabria in the year 1568. In 1583 he entered the order of St. Dominic. Arrested on suspicion of conspiring against the Spanish rule, he was cast into a dungeon at Naples. After spending 27 years in prison, he escaped to Paris, where he died in 1639. His most important work is Universalis Philosophia. Doctrines Campanella's philosophy is the resultant of various influences, chief among which are the naturalism of Telesio, the Greek Pyrrhonism restored by the humanists, and the enthusiasm for the study of nature which resulted from the discoveries made by Copernicus and Galileo. Campanella starts by inquiring into the conditions of knowledge. The veracity of the external senses rests on the testimony of the inner sense. On this inner sense rests also the belief in my own existence and in the existence of God. The inner sense testifies, moreover, to the existence of three functions in my own soul, power, knowledge, and volition. By thinking away the limitations of the power, knowledge, and volition, of which I am conscious, I arrive at an idea of an infinite being possessed of omnipotence, infinite wisdom, and infinite love. These three are, then, the pro-principles of infinite being, they are also the pro-principles of created being. For all creatures are endowed with life, feeling, and desire. They all proceed from God, and they desire to return to Him, as is evident from the universality of the creature's dread of annihilation. This desire of the creature to return to the Creator is a kind of religion, and so far is atheism from being true, that the most universal of all phenomena is the religious tendency by which every created being proclaims the existence of God. This thought is developed by Campanella in a treatise entitled Atheismus Triumphatus. In the Civitas Solis, Campanella outlines his ideal scheme of political government. The scheme is based on the idea of the divine government of the worlds communicated through the papacy to a world monarchy and through this to the individual kingdoms, provinces, and cities. Historical Position The Italian school of natural philosophy resulted from the repudiation of scholasticism by the humanists and the inauguration, by scientific discoveries, of a new era of nature study. The extraordinary enthusiasm with which the contemporaries of Copernicus and Galileo addressed themselves to the study of natural phenomena 
is seen in the naturalistic pantheism of the Italian school no less clearly than in the extravagance of the Paracelsists and others who devoted themselves to the occult sciences and the practice of magic. But whatever may be said of the occultists and magicians, it is certain that the scientific discoveries would never have led to naturalism and pantheism if the principles of scholastic philosophy had not fallen into discredit. Let us pass, therefore, to the study of the scientific movement and its influence on scholastic philosophy. Chapter 51. The Scientific Movement the forerunner of the great scientific movement of the 16th century was Nicolaus of Cusa, 1401-1464. Nicolaus was born at Cues or Cusa, near Treves, in 1401. At an early age he joined the community of the Brothers of the Common Life at Deventer. Later he studied law, mathematics and philosophy at Padua, but finally decided to abandon the legal profession and took holy orders. In 1448 he was made cardinal, and two years later was appointed to the see of Brixen. He died at Todi in Umbria in 1464. His most important works are the treatise De Docta Ignorantia and the dialogue entitled Idiote de Sapientia Libri Tres. These were published at Paris in 1514 and at Basel in 1565. In his speculative philosophy, Nicolaus occupies a position intermediate between Aristotelian and modern thought. He insists with special emphasis on the doctrine of the unity of opposites, coincidentia oppositorum, and on the principle that the beginning of true wisdom is the knowledge of one's own ignorance, Docta Ignorantia. Among his astronomical teachings is that of the rotation of the earth on its axis, a doctrine to which Copernicus subsequently gave scientific form. Nicholas Copernicus, 1473-1543, was born at Thorn in Poland in 1473. After studying at Krakow, Bologna and Padua, he became canon of Frauenburg, in a treatise, De Orbium Celestium Revolutionibus, which appeared in 1543 and was dedicated to Pope Paul III, he defended the heliocentric system of astronomy and definitely placed the Earth among the solar planets. Tycho Brahe, 1546-1601, furnished, by his accurate observations, materials for the work of Kepler. Johannes Kepler, 1571 to 1638, gave further development to the heliocentric hypothesis by discovering the form of planetary orbits and the laws of planetary motions. Galileo Galilei, 1564 to 1642, taught the twofold motion of the Earth and discovered the satellites of Jupiter and the laws of their motions. The discoveries of Boyle, 1627 to 1691, and of Newton, 1642 to 1727, were as important in the department of physics as were those of Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo in the department of astronomy. All these, however, are of interest to the student of philosophy principally because of their effect on the course of speculative thought. Chapter 52. 
Influence of Scientific Discoveries on the Development of Philosophy The attitude which Catholic and Protestant theologians of the 16th century assumed towards the discoveries of Galileo and Kepler is well known. The antagonism, however, between the old and the new modes of thought resulted from a misunderstanding. There is no inherent contradiction between the broad principles of Aristotelian and scholastic philosophy on the one hand and the new physics and astronomy on the other. Aristotle had advocated the investigation of nature, and the greatest of the schoolmen had insisted on the importance of building a science of nature on the basis of empirical knowledge. St. Thomas, in a remarkable passage, had acknowledged the possible advent of a theory which would subvert the entire structure of Aristotelian astronomy, in reference to the hypothesis, suppositiones, by which the ancient astronomers attempted to explain the irregularities of the motions of the planets, he had written, Illorum autem suppositiones quas ad invenerunt non est necessarium esseveras, quia forte secundum alium modum nondum ab hominibus comprehensum apparentia circa stellas salvatur. The scholastics, therefore, who attacked the representatives of the new science, were false to the principles of their school. Had they known and fully felt the spirit of Aristotelian and scholastic philosophy, they should have put an end to their fruitless discussions, shaken off the yoke of a false method, and gone forth with the representatives of the new science to investigate nature. They should have adopted as their motto, anteire decet, non subsequi, and taken the lead in the advance guard of discovery. Instead of doing this, they antagonized science, so that when the new age, dominated by the scientific spirit, sought to found a system of metaphysics, it never for a moment considered that in the Aristotelian and scholastic system of philosophy it already possessed the metaphysics which best accorded with the results of scientific discovery. When, therefore, we study the causes of the misunderstanding between science and scholastic philosophy, we must lay the burden of the blame on the shoulders of the degenerate representatives of scholasticism, who, by betraying at the critical moment of its history the great system which they were supposed to defend, did that system a wrong which all the efforts of their successors have not succeeded in writing. The discredit of scholasticism was due not to a lack of ideas, but to a lack of men to set forth those ideas in the proper light. Moreover, if we are to vindicate scholasticism at the expense of scholastics, we must not overlook the dependence of the scientific movement itself on scholastic philosophy. Humanism grew out of scholastic soil and owed more to scholastic vigor and clearness of thinking than we are commonly aware of. The scientific revival also owes much to the learning of the schools. Columbus and Copernicus, who did more than any of their contemporaries to revolutionize modes of thought, appealed to their contemporaries on the strength of texts from Aristotle and Philolaus. It was by reasoning on the texts of Strabo and Ptolemy that Columbus convinced himself of the existence of a new country beyond the Western Ocean, and it was by meditating on the glory of God and on the spread of the Christian religion, which he deemed his special vocation in life, 
that the great mariner acquired the courage to brave the perils of unknown seas. We must keep these facts in mind and not be too quick to regard the discoveries of this age as out of all relation with the past. Scientific discoveries form no exception to the law that thought flows in a continuous stream from one generation to another. Francis Bacon Life Francis Bacon was the first to attempt the construction of a system of empirical philosophy on the basis of the principles of the new scientific method. He was born in London in 1568. After studying at Cambridge, he spent two years in Paris as companion of the English ambassador. Returning to England, he adopted the legal profession. In 1595, he entered Parliament, became adviser of the Crown in 1604, and keeper of the Great Seal in 1617. In 1618, he was made Lord Chancellor with the title of Baron Verulam, to which, three years later, that of Viscount St. Albans was added. He was charged, as is well known, with bribery and corruption, and, on pleading guilty to the accusations, was deprived of his office and fined forty thousand pounds. He died in 1626. Doctrines Bacon set himself the task of reorganizing all the branches of scientific knowledge, and with this purpose in view he proposed to expound a new method of scientific study and to treat of each of the sciences with special reference to the making of scientific and practical discoveries. The work in which this plan was to be realized is called the Instauratio Magna, of which the first part, entitled De Dignitate et Augmentis Scientiarum, treats of the reorganization of the sciences, and the second part, entitled Novum Organum, contains the theory of induction and of scientific method. To the sciences themselves, and to their application to discovery, Bacon contributed merely a portion of his projected work, descriptive of natural phenomena, and entitled Historia Naturalis, Sive Silva Silvarum. Philosophy has for its object a knowledge of God, nature, and man. Our positive knowledge of God belongs to faith, for reason can give us merely a negative knowledge of God by refuting the objections urged against faith, and by showing the absurdity of atheism. It is true, Bacon says in a well-known passage in his Essays, that a little philosophy inclineth men's minds to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds about to religion. Bacon distinguishes first philosophy, philosophia prima or scientia universalis, which treats of the concepts and principles underlying all the parts of philosophy, and the philosophy of nature, which is subdivided into speculative and operative, the latter being defined as natural philosophy in its application to mechanics and other arts. The first step towards attaining a knowledge of nature consists in purifying the mind by the exclusion of the phantoms, or idols, which interfere with the acquisition of knowledge. The idols, or false appearances, are reduced to four classes. 1. Idols of the tribe. These are common to all men, and are, in some way, derived from the very nature and limitations of the human mind. 
Such, for example, is the tendency to anthropomorphize. For the mind, Bacon observes, is not a plain mirror, but a mirror of uneven surface which combines its own figure with the figures of the objects it represents. 2. Idols of the Den These arise from the peculiar character of the individual. Some minds are naturally analytical, while others are naturally synthetical. To each belongs its own peculiar class of idols of the den. 3. Idols of the marketplace. These arise from the intercourse of men and from the peculiarities of language. For words, Bacon warns us, are symbols of conventional value and are based on the carelessly constructed concepts of the crowd. 4. Idols of the theatre. These are false appearances arising from tradition and the authority of schools and teachers. Having freed his mind from the false appearances of truth, the searcher after knowledge must next proceed to a personal and active investigation of nature. He must not spin science from his own inner consciousness, as the spider spins its web from its own substance. He must, like the bee, collect material from the world around him and elaborate that material by the process of reflection and meditation. He must observe facts and proceed from the observation of facts to the establishment of laws and axioms. Bacon notes that the inductio per enumerationem simplicem, of which alone Aristotle and the schoolmen treat, is scanty and slovenly, because it is based on the observation of positive instances merely, and neglects to take negative instances into account, whereas induction should consider negative instances and instances of difference of degree as well as positive instances. These hints were taken up by John Stuart Mill, to whom we owe the four experimental methods of induction. The chief difference between the Aristotelian and the Baconian induction consists in this, that the former proceeds by accumulation of instances, while the latter is based on the elimination of non-typical instances and the discovery of decisive or prerogative instances. In his effort to accentuate the importance of the inductive method of acquiring knowledge, Bacon committed the grave error of throwing discredit on the deductive or syllogistic process. Failing to recognize that each method has its use, he carried his hostility to the deductive method so far as to refuse to admit on deductive evidence the Copernican system of astronomy. Historical Position Little or nothing has been said of the contents of Bacon's philosophy. Indeed, it is by the method which he inaugurated, rather than by the content of his system of thought, that Bacon is to be judged. His attempts at personal investigation in accordance with the rules which he laid down were, for the most part, crude, and were far less successful than the experiments made by many of his contemporaries. It was for a long time an axiom almost universally accepted that all the scientific progress made since the days of Bacon was due to the employment of the scientific method which he inaugurated. Recently, however, a more moderate view has begun to prevail. While it is conceded that Bacon deserves exceptional credit for having called attention to the necessity of an active investigation of nature, 
it is recognized also that he committed a serious mistake in discountenancing the use of deduction. It is historically demonstrable that the hypothetical anticipation of nature, by means of deduction, is as fruitful of scientific discovery as is the use of the inductive method, and Mill, with all his admiration for Bacon's method, acknowledges that no great advance can be made in science except by the alternate employment of induction and deduction. Descartes, who, as we shall see, advocated and used the deductive method, made more important contributions to natural science than did Bacon, the author of what has been called the scientific method. End of chapter 51